Hey, Laura. Hey, Lizzie. The Lord be with you. And also with you. (laughs) (laughs) Friends, I'm the Reverend Lizzie McManus-Dale. And I'm the Reverend Laura DePampolo. Welcome to And Also With You, a new podcast on reclaiming an ancient Christian faith for modern Christian life. Okay, Laura, in our very first episode, you dropped a dirty word. You dropped a surreptitious, a suspicious, a scary word. And that word was, do you remember? I think it was the E word. <gasps> it was the E word evangelism. Oh, oh my, my God. Gosh. I can't believe I can't believe you did that oh to me. Yes. Okay. So what do we mean when we say evangelical? And what do we mean when we say evangelicalism? And what do we mean when we say evangelism? Yeah. Huge huge questions. I am going to start by quoting Wikipedia. <laughs> I think they do a really good job explaining uh, evangelical Christianity. So stick I'm a with stan. me. I'm a stan. You know, it's a great resource. Evangelical Christianity or evangelical Protestantism is a worldwide interdenominational movement within Protestant Christianity that affirms the centrality of being born again, in which an individual experiences a personal conversion, the authority of the Bible as God's revelation to humanity, and spreading the Christian message. The word evangelical comes from a Greek word that basically means the good news or good news. I think this is a great description of evangelical, capital E. When we talk about being evangelical, it's this religious movement that has happened, and it's taken a very particular flavor in our contemporary Christian landscape. And I will speak from Mm -hmm. the perspective I know best, which is white American evangelicalism. That's what I was raised in. So I, I did a little more research, and the National Association for Evangelicals emphasizes four major points of being evangelical, and they are as follows. Conversionism. This is a belief that lives need to be transformed through this born-again experience. Born-again is often an intense and intentional commitment to Jesus and a lifelong process of following Jesus. The second one is activism, the expression and demonstration of the gospel in missionary and social reform efforts, biblicalism, which is a high regard for and obedience to the Bible as the ultimate authority. And then this one, <laughs> I, you know, despite being raised evangelical, this was a new word to me. Oh, I'm excited. Crucicentrism. What? Crucicentrism. Crucicentrism. Yeah, right? There's a lot going on there. You can kind of figure out what it means, though, based off of the word. But they define it as the stress of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross as making possible the redemption of humanity. Oh, like atonement theory. Yeah, mm -hmm, exactly. So these are four parts that they emphasize as what it means to be evangelical. And it can be hard to define and describe what evangelical Christianity is because it is so diverse. And that's part of the reason why I turned to Wikipedia and the National Association for Evangelicals, because I was struggling to find a better definition or write a better definition. It's a very diverse movement. There's no central leadership. And in the United States, evangelical Christianity has 
this particular flavor, an emphasis on getting the good news of Jesus Christ out there. And there's a real sense of urgency in this type of faith because there's a belief that if you don't tell people about Jesus, they are going to hell. And so you see things like chick tracks, which are these, you know, little books of cartoons passed out to strangers to try to tell them about Jesus. You see things like televangelists, Christian rock bands, mega churches, printing Bible verses on the bottom of French fry containers. <laughs> All of these things seem kind of corny to me now, but I will admit when I was evangelical, I used to think like these are the ways that we get the word out. Like, <laughs> someone is going to see John 3:16 on the bottom of their shopping bag and and their heart's going to be changed. Yep, that Forever 21 haul, baby. <laughs> yeah, don't worry about the sweatshop conditions that made the clothing. Um, God is there. God is there. I mean, Yikes. it is brilliant marketing strategy. Yeah, and really icky. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and white evangelical spaces in America are also, you know, cultural. There's a certain reading of scripture that has led to what we might label as a more conservative. And I, I'm not satisfied with that word because I, I don't always find it to be helpful, but it's helpful for right now in talking about what we're trying to define as this big thing, evangelical Christianity. But generally speaking, when I'm saying conservative, I'm talking about male leadership in the church, anti-LGBTQ stances, Purity culture, you know, think uh, abstinence-only sex education, white nationalism, certain political parties. All of these things are results of a certain understanding, a certain perspective on faith. Lizzie, what would you add to this loose definition of evangelical Christianity? I think I would add, I mean, you've already mentioned it, but I think I would just double down on, am I saying this right? Biblicism? Biblicism? Yeah, sure. <laughs> I'm like very worried about it. Well, you don't take the Bible seriously enough. You can't even say the word Bible. <laughs> That's all the evidence they need. It's <laughs> closed. So I heard a lot of biblical inerrancy. Oh, yes. Yes. Lizzie, what is that? Yeah. So inerrancy, inerrant, I-N-E-R-R-A-N-C-Y. So without error, mm. which is such a fascinating way, I think, to put it because the argument for biblical inerrancy says so that the Bible doesn't have any errors. And like, you know, when I first heard that phrase, I was like, like, no typos? Like, what do you mean by <laughs> error? God's got a really good editor. Yeah. And what it means is that there's no real room to critique or wrestle with scripture without it eventually coming to a sort of premeditated conclusion. And those conclusions are often God's ways are higher than our ways, or, you know, you have to follow these like 10 steps to then have a healthy and successful marriage or, you know, biblical inerrancy is about if you follow the letter of the law, as it has been described within this certain movement of Christianity, you are leading a biblical life. And so biblical life often talks about women submitting to men that women mm -hmm. like I get first Timothy two quoted at me in my comment section all the time you know, you mm -hmm. should not suffer a woman to speak in church or women are saved through childbearing, right? These like, and people take these verses and often decontextualize them and 
lift them over and against other parts of scripture that are actually counter to that. So like, I often encounter a lot of biblical inerrancy conversations around the epistles, which are about 75% of the New Testament, and they are the letters largely attributed to St. Paul, but also Peter and James and the book of Hebrews. So these are kind of uplifted as like, and it kind of makes sense. Like there's a logic to it because they they are the letters of the early church and people trying to figure out how to like live together. So they're a little bit more like, this is how you live together than like mm-hmm. <laughs> Jesus talking about a persistent widow. Yeah. Did we talk about in our Bible episode, did we talk about how the letters in scripture are, when we read them today, we're reading someone else's mail. I can't remember yeah. if we said we that. Did, no, we did not. But, but I shared you know, that with a person recently and completely blew their mind. Yeah. And so there are letters that they still matter today because they're still teaching us things about God that are true. But without the context, I mean, it. <laughs> you're missing something. And yeah, so we only when, have like 20% of the conversation. And when people are pull verses, proof texting, they often call it. Yeah. It's not how the letters were written or intended to be read. It just doesn't hold up. These four principles that I shared, I think, really do capture a lot of our understanding of what it means to be evangelical in America. And taking it a little bit more personal, I grew up evangelical, evangelical Christian, but in New England. And most people who grew up around me were Christian, but they were Catholic. And Catholics are certainly evangelical, but culturally, they approach their faith very differently than an evangelical Protestant might. Oh my God, Can Cosine grew up Catholic, very different. <laughs> yeah. For example, my college roommate grew up Muslim in Georgia, and she told me stories about how all the popular kids in school would go to youth group at their church on Friday night. And she was always like, I'm Muslim. I am not going to youth group at your church on a Friday night. And that wasn't my world in suburban Boston. Like people were not going to youth group on Friday night. They went to CCD class some other time or, you know, some sort of formation Sunday school. I have another friend who grew up in Arkansas, deep in evangelical culture. And she told me stories about how all of the popular kids at her school would go to church, they would go to youth group, and they would also come to school in their grandfather's KKK rings. Jesus Christ. Yeah, it that's so foreign to my experience of being evangelical Christian. And both experiences are stories of evangelical oh, yeah. Christians, but culturally, there's so much diversity across the country and how it plays out. And so evangelical for me, in my context, meant I was a little bit more conservative, that word again, than my peers. And a lot of my thinking and my approach to life and my beliefs, I was very aware that I was different than everyone else. And so I needed to act differently. I needed to think differently. All of that in efforts to convert people to believing in God. And the funny thing looking back is a lot of the people around me, they believed in God. (laughs) They just, they didn't believe in God 
the way that Jesus intended, which was as an evangelical Christian. <laughs> that was my concept. Boop, um, boop. So it's, yeah, so it's interesting to reflect back now on my evangelical upbringing. There are large portions of it that I simply wish were not my experience, my religious upbringing. But there are a lot of things that I learned as an evangelical Christian, capital E, that I still believe today. And it's very complicated to think about this. And I I think a lot of our listeners are in this tangled web with us. It's totally fine if you don't have one good thing to say about your personal religious history. And I know for many of us, it's hard to go back, to look back and untangle what was helpful from our evangelical past and what was not so great. And what do we want to continue to believe in today? Right. And what do we want to let go of? Because mm. I what, think. Yeah. Oh, no, well, I was just going to ask you to share about your experience with being evangelical. Yeah, I want to speak to that in a second, but just to sort of speak to what you were just naming of like holding this mixed Mm -hmm. bag. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of what I have seen as a priest who walks with people in a congregation that is Episcopalian, but is at least 75% former evangelical, non-denom, fundamentalist, Mm -hmm. a wide category. I see a lot of grief. Yeah. And grief can have many faces. She can look like anger. She can look like sorrow. She can look like rage. She can look like complete and total rejection, right? Like, I think a deep reality of evangelicalism is that to be so motivated to stop people from going to hell, I think it is kind of a twisted theological motivation. But it also, in taking the Bible literally, there's plenty of verses I wish that they would take more literally, like around money <laughs> mm-hmm. in terms of global, the, the, the impact of this sort of, quote, you know, evangelical movement on global politics. I'd love for there to be a lot more wealth redistribution because that's actually talked about pretty excessively in all categories and parts of scripture. But there's also a lot of care for neighbor. There's a lot of show up mm-hmm. for people when they're grieving and there's a mm-hmm. lot of like be present, you know, and there's a lot of particular things about when I've been to funerals in certain evangelical traditions that have an altar call, I've personally experienced that as um, deeply hurtful Mm. (laughs) and made me sad in a way that was not the grief of a person who has died, but sad that like we're using someone's death to further an agenda and to manipulate and take advantage of other people who are sad. Yeah. Yeah, totally. There's something about – the agenda of it, I think, that doesn't sit right with me today. But I I love your comment about the grief because I feel that in my own life as well. I mean, I look back on years spent and friendships formed and, you know, I'm still friends with some of those people, but it's different now. And that that's okay. It's okay that, that our friendships Yeah, relationships change, sure. But also – there's grief because there was things that I don't like from those communities that made an imprint in my life. And maybe if I could have chosen something else, I would have chosen that. I would have chosen to grow up in an Episcopal church. <laughs> no, they all they all have their their challenges, that's for sure. But I wish for a life that maybe didn't give me 
religious baggage and trauma. Oh Lord, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So hard. <laughs> That's so hard to ask for. Yeah, and like I think before I speak of my own experience, I want to name the grief, and I want to name the grief because there is pain because there was love, right? Yes. We, we don't experience pain without there being a sense of disappointment or hope that this would have been better or love or love being taken from us, right? Like pain is, <laughs> to quote my favorite Anglican theologian, John Green, <laughs> pain <laughs> demands to be felt. He's not my favorite Anglican theologian, but I do love John Green. And, uh, and he was an Episcopal chaplain and I think still is an Episcopalian. Anyway, if John Green ever wants to come on this podcast, I would combust my little <laughs> nerd fighter heart. 19-year-old Lizzie would actually melt into the floor and go meet Jesus. <laughs> okay. But so, okay, so I just want to name that like there's pain. And so sometimes that pain right can be fuel for our anger, but it's also like I am very thankful for so much. I'm so mm-hmm. thankful that I grew up, I'm especially thankful for this, but I'm trying to have a generous intention in that I had a very evangelical youth group. So let me take a step back. I was raised Roman Catholic. Mm-hmm. The first 10 years of my life was very happy, had a great experience with Catholicism. I also was very protected from the parts of Catholicism that I think lots of people experience and deconstruct from, right? I'm a woman and I'm a priest, right? <laughs> like eventually that would have been a problem, but I yes. was so young that that was not a problem. I was surrounded by Catholic lay women who loved me, cherished me, took care of me. I was in a multicultural context, which was like beautiful and I think really shaped a lot of my ethos and worldview and and then very rudely, my mother was called into ministry. And so we all went to a Methodist church. I'm making a very long story short. <laughs> and so she started Divinity School my first day of sixth grade. So she was training for ministry and working full-time on staff. But she was on staff with many other pastors. It was a very large Methodist church, mm-hmm. United Methodist, which is mainline. If you don't know what mainline is, there's like essentially three camps of Christian in America. There's mainline, which is like Episcopalian, Lutheran, Methodist, Presbyterian. If you see a church depicted on a TV show that's not a megachurch, it's probably mainline Mm -hmm. (laughs) and Catholic. And then I think Catholic and Episcopal start to bridge into a category of like Orthodox, so Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, which I think is also mainline, but there's some, we start to get into some nuances there. Mm -hmm. And then there's evangelical megachurch. So Methodist theology is not evangelical historically mm-hmm. in that there's a big emphasis on spreading the gospel and an emotional- a great awakening. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And the conversion experience. So John Wesley was like, my heart was strangely warmed. He's the founder yes. of Methodism. That's a big thing. There's a flame depicted on the cross in the symbol of Methodism, which is not- a fiery cross a la KKK. It's like Holy Spirit flame. Our hearts mm-hmm. are aflame. Mm-hmm. But so there's a big emphasis on an emotional response to Jesus. So that was certainly there, but like not, I think, in the same coercive way that my spouse experienced. And I want him to come on here and tell his own story at some point. Yeah. Because he grew up in rural North Carolina in a free will Baptist church, which is a special flavor that is, as he likes wow. to say, like Southern Baptist, but you can lose your salvation. It's not eternal. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my. He also likes to say he grew up original, not extra crispy. (laughs) 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 I 
I really, he needs to tell his own story, but he's got great ones. So he grew up in, in Wilson, North Carolina. So my, I married into an evangelical family who now all worship at Jubilee. So there's clearly mm-hmm. a whole decade plus long story there, yeah. which I would love to actually have them come on and tell sometime if they would mm-hmm. be willing to, because it's a really, really powerful story. But um, I grew up in Chapel Hill. And if you know anything about North Carolina, you probably know UNC Chapel Hill, famous for basketball, Michael Jordan. Chapel Hill is a blue dot and a red state and quite taken with that. So it was very progressive and not as progressive as I think people like to think because like – you know that meme, the reductors meme, that's like, all are welcome sign in a neighborhood where the average house costs $2 million. I love that meme so much. <laughs> I do too. Um, that, that feels very true of my Chapel Hill upbringing, <laughs> um, as grateful as I am. And so I had a lot of friends who didn't go to church and that was mm-hmm. like not a thing. I also, there, it's definitely still a Southern town, right? So there, you know, my church was very like churchy and Southern, but my mm-hmm. school was not, right? I did yeah. not have the experiences that your roommate had. I mean, mm-hmm. but I would be curious to know, actually, I do know that there were other people, other Christians experiencing that kind of evangelicalism, but that was, my experience of it in my high school was like, that was very not cool. Like that was mm. not the popular thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But my youth group to speak of popularity and how those dynamics were played out was not affiliated with a specific organization, mm-hmm. but the leaders had been trained by a group I will not name, but is mm-hmm. a parachurch organization that's very big. You definitely know what it is. It, mm-hmm. Like you've definitely heard of it. And their Mm -hmm. methodology is this. They train young adults to identify popular kids. And they say, find those popular kids, you know, the attractive jocks, the, Mm -hmm. you know, dance stars, whatever, and get them to come to our youth group. And when they come to youth group, just make sure they come back. Make sure they have a fun time. We don't need to like do a lot of Bible teaching. We're mostly going to play games that involve a lot of food stuff that I found very gross as someone with very intense sensory, undiagnosed issues at the time. (laughs) But we're going to just play lots of games and keep Mm -hmm. it really lighthearted and fun. And these popular kids are going to bring in everybody else because they're popular. And so focus on them, disciple them, bring them in, make them leaders in the organization. And that's how you grow because we are focused on growth, 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 growth. And we're going to deeply bury the lead that actually this whole organization exists to keep people from going to hell. So that very much was my youth group experience, which Mm -hmm. I found really lonely because I loved church and I loved <laughs> studying scripture. And that was like, not what we did at youth group, which yeah. is kind of ironic. And so when I reflect on that, I want to name, I have so much gratitude and compassion for adults who cared about students, who yes. cared about kids knowing God, right? Yeah. I have been a youth pastor and I've also been a youth pastor who was handed like a few ways to do things, had no formal pedagogical training and just threw stuff at the wall to see what stuck, right? And made sure that kids were safe and got home safe, right? Like, Yeah, yeah. No, I had the most amazing youth volunteers, youth pastors, youth leaders who gave so much of their time to a bunch of awkward middle schoolers. Like, yeah. That's beautiful. And it's beautiful. And like, I think a lot of the time, part of the thing about evangelicalism is there's like a clear template and the theology is not necessarily super deep. 
that's a generalization, but mm-hmm. it does mean that more people can lead, which sometimes more is not necessarily better, but it also is very empowering that you don't need the pastor or the priest. And especially if you're in a bigger church mm-hmm. and as the solo clergy in my church, I'm getting to a point where I'm like, I, I need more like leadership. Like, even yeah. though I'm the one with three degrees, I, I need other people to start, you know, taking the discipleship chair here for these different subsets because, it can all be the clergy and the laity have like people who are not clergy. That's what laity means have a role in forming others. So, so there was a lot of gifts in this. Absolutely. And I, this like emphasis on finding and targeting the popular kids, bringing the popular kids in and just being fun, 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 fun with this, I think, frankly, really insidious theological undercurrent Mm -hmm. of, Absolutely. I had a lot of purity culture educating. I mean, I feel like that's the number one thing we learned about if we ever learned about Bible stuff. It was purity mm-hmm. culture. It really ties into a lot of what academics are talking about now around what has happened with the evangelical church and the emergence of right-wing Christian nationalism. Mm-hmm. And I think there, I do not think this, you know, youth group experience is like, ah, oh, this is the seed that we can trace, you know, the roots back to, but it's one piece of this emphasis on popularity and emphasis on aesthetics and image Mm -hmm. and being attractive that connects to a kind of masculinity, to a conflation of white supremacy that Kristen Cobes-Demez talks about in Jesus and John Wayne. That's like, how do we make this marketable? How do we turn Jesus into Mm -hmm. a commodity that people will buy and therefore buy into our product, which is this way of living that gives us more social clout? Yes. And you see that in evangelical media. You know, if you look at these megachurch pastors, they have millions of followers. <laughs> oh my they gosh, sell, do you follow preacher sneakers? I sure do. <laughs> and they, they have millions of followers. They have huge platforms. They write books. They have conferences. They are friends with celebrities. You see how this is reflected in their whole approach. And it's this idea that if you influence influential people, then you will spread the gospel to them and they will make it look attractive for everyone else. Marketing 101. Right. Marketing 101. And like, again, marketing, I do, I think marketing is inherently evil. No, because that's the same, very similar principles to organizing. So I'm involved very, I'm, you know, sort of a baby in the IAF world, but I'm learning about how do we do community organizing for broad-based organizing? So how can we Mm -hmm. get Catholics, Muslims, Episcopalians, everybody else together in the state of Texas, which is, you know, in a political gridlock to pass things like Medicaid for all, right? Something Mm -hmm. that's not like a hot button topic, but actually really will affect the most vulnerable among us. So yes. And the, one of the things you do is you target influencers, AKA clergy. (laughs) So I think the, the targeting of influential people is like, I don't know, it's just something that I'm suspicious of if that's the sum total goal. Yeah. And I also think the emphasis on a very particular emotional experience and a, a, a vulnerability that I do think most of the time is genuine. I mean, I know that they, everybody's got a story of when they fake spoken tongues or they fake cried or, you know, right? <laughs> but I also had moments of sincere spiritual encounter. Yes. And I see as a priest how rare it is that we have public spaces where we all get to feel a feeling together and Mm -hmm. that's okay. And we're not rushing through it. We're not shoving tissues in people's faces to stop crying, you know? And so there's like kind of a magic to it and a magic that gets manipulated. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. There's 
a lot of emotion associated with uh, at the top of the episode when I was talking about this born again experience. Part of being Christian in this model is strong feelings yes. that affirm your faith. And if you don't have those feelings, you're you must not be doing your faith correctly. Which I think can really lead to a lot of imposter syndrome and deep pain for folks who don't necessarily encounter God in an emotional way. And actually, we are somatic creatures. We are body, mind, soul creatures. And that's why, as Episcopalians, I'm very thankful for the Eucharist, which is a meal that happens whether or not I feel it. And so I think one thing, though, that I am thankful for with my evangelical experience and that emotional stuff and the willingness to pray extemporaneously, which just means like, pray without a prayer book. (laughs) Pray from your heart. How would you you define praying extemporaneously? That was great. Yeah. (laughs) I I think I would say with your own words, I don't know, someone would find a problem with that definition, but with no form, with no template, with no model. Even though there is kind of low-key, I think. No, there is, there is, there is, there is, there is. Yeah, but but that's not scripted. Anyway, but like praying for people, praying from your heart, laying hands on people. I have had multiple experiences in my life where I've been very thankful for that post-deconstruction. Mm-hmm. So like six years ago, I had a really terrifying cancer scare and mm-hmm. I'm all good. Thanks be to God, genuinely. Mm-hmm. And it was like kind of miraculous. Like it was actually genuinely like a, a miracle in my life that wow. I went to the doctor with symptoms that normally this kind of cancer has no symptoms for and they caught stuff early, but like precancerous stuff. So it was, it was Whoa. very early, but like the doctor looked at me after she removed these growths and was like, if you had not come in with these symptoms and this had gone unchecked, like if you had not had symptoms, you would be dead by the time you're 30. Holy moly. Yeah. And, but before I went in for that procedure, I was terrified mm-hmm. and I had a friend ask if she could pray for me and lay hands on me And let me tell you, I was also concurrently in an internship in an Episcopal church and not a single Episcopalian offered to do that for me. Mm. And I'm not saying that that's like every Episcopal church everywhere, but like my progressive Christian friends were like, wow, that's really terrible. How do you feel about that? Which is a really appropriate (laughs) response. But what I wanted and needed and couldn't even name that I needed. They were busy being non-anxious presences in the room. Exactly. I needed someone to pray over me because I was like, yes. I would like Jesus to anoint and heal me because I would yes. like not die of yes. colon cancer before I'm 30. <laughs> like, that would be great. Yes. And that willingness and vulnerability and willingness to pray, because I think it's very scary to pray from your gut like that. That's There's a reason oh, yeah. a prayer book is really powerful. So Yeah, it is. And most of our conversation so far has been about contemporary evangelical, this contemporary evangelical movement as we see it in our current religious landscape, capital E, evangelical. And I would be curious to hear you share more about the origins of evangelical. So shifting a little bit to lowercase e, evangelical. This concept of being evangelical did not emerge Recently, I mean, we see it in scripture. Its origins are in scripture. It's this concept of 
proclaiming and sharing the word of Jesus. I, I shared at the beginning of the episode, it has its origins in the word for good news. And so we see this in Acts, in the Gospels. Lizzie, can you share more about where we see this in scripture and how it plays out? Yeah. So we see it in several places. I think two of the most famous places are Jesus gives something called the Great Commission, Mm -hmm. which is when he says to his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. And it's important. That's a big thing because it's a Trinitarian moment in scripture, which is actually quite rare. Mm-hmm. We believe in the Trinity, but the Trinity is is not frequently named in the New Testament. It's something that's sort of Im- like like in that formula. But it's also a moment where Jesus says, like, part of my mission here as this incarnate Lord, fully God, fully human, is to tell you, my motley crew of ragtag <laughs> women with money and <laughs> young men and doubters and skeptics and believers and cynics, to go out and spread this good news to Mm. everybody. This is not just for one nation or one people or one tribe. Mm -hmm. And sometimes this is used to say, therefore, Judaism, this first covenant is no longer relevant. That is not true. The Episcopal Church officially adheres to a dual covenant theology, which says that first covenant still holds. Covenant God Mm -hmm. made with Israel, you know, the Israelites, the Jewish people still holds. This Mm -hmm. is a second covenant, and this is for the Gentiles, aka people who are not Jewish. Mm -hmm. And so that's like the first place that we see go spread the good news, the gospel evangelism. And then we see the person who I think most famously takes up the mantle is the Apostle Paul or St. Paul, mm-hmm. who meet in Acts and who wrote epistles such as Romans, First and Second Corinthians, <laughs> like some of the Bible's greatest hits, which again, we talked about earlier being like, we only have some of his letters and not the letters he was responding to. And so mm-hmm. in the book of Acts, we see him going around being a church planter, which I have a lot of affection for because Mm -hmm. I'm a church planter. Mm -hmm. And actually he was a tent maker by trade or was he specifically a tent peg maker or just tents? Mm -hmm. I think he's a tent maker, not a tent peg maker. I think that's. Yeah. I think he made tents. (laughs) He made tents. (laughs) Yeah. He made tents. Okay. So, so Paul's a tent maker and he's traveling around the Mediterranean basin, making tents. Kind of made some pegs too, because you can't have a tent without a tent peg. I I mean, you can't. Yeah. He he was a tent peg maker. In addition to every other part of the tent. (laughs) You know, that is the most church plant thing ever. It's like, I'm going to build the building. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. You you need me to print the bulletins, design the bulletins, translate the liturgy, assemble the liturgy, recruit people to do the liturgy, clean the sanctuary myself. (laughs) That's just really good me right now. You and Paul, two peas in a pod. (sighs) Probably. We'd probably be fighting within five minutes, but like passionately support each other. That's how I feel about Paul. So anyway, so he's like bopping around, making his tents, and inviting people to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he famously recruits lots and lots of people to this. My favorite story comes from Acts chapter 16, which is the conversion of Lydia, which begins in verse 11. So Lydia is a, a wealthy woman. She's a merchant of purple cloth. And we know from the ancient world that purple cloth was a very expensive commodity. So she's wealthy and she's the mm-hmm. head of her household, not mentioned in connection with any men. Isn't it interesting that Paul, who is so often referenced as telling women to be silent, is hanging out with this lady who has Hmm. no male connections, head of her household, economically independent, baptizes her and her whole household, and nowhere once 
Nowhere once does he say, now you need to go get married and submit in order to follow Jesus. No, he just baptizes her Hmm. and goes on his merry way. And Lydia is then the church planter. She's been baptized by Paul and she is the head of the church in Macedonia. So he's popping around. He's like planting these churches. He's spreading the good news. He also goes in Philippi in the letter to the Philippians. So the church to the church in Philippi, he at one point urges Yehudia and Syntyche to be of one mind because they are co-laborers in the gospel. So he's just been spreading this good news to people. And part Mm -hmm. of what he's doing in this process is inviting people in a time in the ancient world under empire when violence is an everyday reality, mm-hmm. where hierarchy is extremely important and mm-hmm. vital to your survival, like if you are born low class enslaved, you have no hope, right? This is not capitalism and not that capitalism is great, but there's no like even sort of cultural myth that you can work your way out of it. Sure. So in a time where, where people are extremely stratified and there is a lot of sadness. He's spreading a message saying, hey, actually God cares about you and has Mm. called you by name, has counted the hairs on your head, loves you, and wants you to share in the sacred meal that, by the way, is also God. It's very metal. (laughs) (laughs) And all are invited to this meal. Like Paul often is popping off at people saying, no, 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 the rich people don't get to gather and have this meal first when it's convenient Mm -hmm. and then invite the poor people. No, all of you have to break bread together. And that remains radical today for sure. But it was like, super radical at the time. And in so doing, Paul is also spreading this kind of insurgent message of peace and of kindness and of love and that God's love is for everyone and that you don't actually have to do anything or sacrifice anything or offer anything to earn it. God did the sacrificing. And that's something that I think gets a little twisted in our minds of like, we can do a whole other episode on atonement theology at some point <laughs> down the line. But like, let me just say for now, it's really significant in the ancient world that God does the God sacrifice. People don't do the God sacrifice. Mm-hmm. That's really, really. Yeah. Yeah. Powerful. Oh my gosh. When you were just talking about Paul, I was getting goosebumps. <laughs> oh, he's my dude. I know. I love him so much. I work <sighs> at a church called St. Paul's. So. I feel like he's, we have a very special connection. And when I hear you talking about what evangelical means in scripture, I'm getting chills. I'm thinking, yes, I like that. I want that. Sign me up when I hear that. And when it's twisted in a particular way, a way that we see in our contemporary, culture, I'm less drawn to it. It's, it's less convincing. Mm. Something I think that's worth saying is when evangelicals, going back to capital E evangelicals, so that the kind of contemporary movement we see in our society now, when they claim that they value things like the conversion experience, activism, this emphasis on the Bible, so on and so forth. There's a subtle statement that they are naming these things as values because other Christians just don't care about them at all or don't care about them as much or in the right way. And this is not true. 
It's just not true. As I was reflecting on what it means to be evangelical, I was reading these these concepts, conversion and activism and the Bible and 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 wait a minute. These are all things that are still very important to my life and my ministry today. Yes, I understand them a little bit differently today, but I made a TikTok. We have a podcast. I'm a priest. I do all of these things to encourage people in their faith, in their life of faith. So I think some of these values that I held as an evangelical or that were ingrained in me as an evangelical still remain in my life and my ministry today. But one thing, along with a lot of the cultural differences that I don't really do today, or one thing that has shifted is that I don't, the motivating factor behind my ministry today, behind why I am evangelical today, is not out of fear that if people don't convert, they will go to hell. I don't act out of that fear, out of that anxiety for other people's salvation. I want people to know and love God because I'm thinking about this this prayer comes to mind. We say it on Good Friday and at all ordination services. And this prayer in the Book of Common Prayer, it says, let the whole world see and know that things which were cast down are being raised up and things which had grown old are being made new, and that all things are being brought to their perfection by him through whom all things were made, your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Mm. With God, there is new life in a way that no one else offers it to us. And we are recording an episode on hell coming soon. So I don't want to quite go down the hell road right now. <laughs> I don't ever want to go down the hell road, actually. <laughs> but I want to I put a pin in this conversation about hell for a later date. For Halloween. For Halloween. Lauren's favorite feast day, actually. Uh, it's a high holy day in, in my life. But I just want to say that when I think about being evangelical today, this fear of hell, this fear of other people's salvation, it is not what is motivating why I share my faith. It is not motivating this podcast. The life that Jesus offers us is what is fueling this fire. Mm, Jesus, that'll preach. Sure will. Oh, you preacher or something? Dang. Uh, yeah, you know. <laughs> Lizzie, what does it mean for you to be evangelical today? Because I, I think you also identify as an evangelical. I mean, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, you don't you don't just make silly little TikToks for funsies? <laughs> I mean, they are fun. I wouldn't they do are fun. I would, yeah. Uh, and I actually think God did make us out of joy for joy. So having joy, pleasure, delight in things can be the telos, the, the end goal. But you know, I wouldn't be planting one of the newest Episcopal churches in the entire Anglican communion if I did not believe in spreading the gospel and being yes. a tent maker after St. Paul in my own humble, humble way. Mm -hmm. 
So I co-sign everything you said about the life with God. I just, my life is, there's definitely hardship. There has definitely been terrible trauma, Mm -hmm. but my life is very fulfilling and Mm -hmm. beautiful in part because I think of privilege and chance, but largely because God is in it. Because mm-hmm. when, when my life has not been beautiful, it's still been beautiful because God was there. Mm-hmm. And to add to that, this sort of practical piece of like, okay, that's great for life. Why do you believe in God? But why do I also believe in the church and mm. spreading the good news of the gospel in Jesus Christ is one, you cannot actually be a Christian by yourself because we mm-hmm. are called to be the body of Christ. Our bodies together, lowercase b bodies are part of the capital B body. Mm-hmm. And we partake in the body of Christ in the Eucharist in our tradition, in, in which is an episode that's coming up. So stay tuned for more on that. But it's an experience. So to be a Christian demands love of neighbor and enemy, which means you have to regularly be proximate to both neighbor and enemy. (laughs) And the church is a place where that happens. And exhaustingly so, beautifully so, brutally so. And I do not know of another social institution in this day and age where strangers are made into kin. Hmm. And I don't know of an institution. I think there's places where it happens where you don't have to, you know, I actually watched a whole TikTok series on this recently about third spaces, but you don't have to pay to get in. Yes, like churches ask for your money. I ask for people's money. It's not for me on Sundays. It's actually, it goes to the operating costs of the church Mm -hmm. and to outreach in the community. So, but you don't have to, there's no fee, there's no membership. So you don't have to have money to be there. It's a space that you freely access where everyone can be in community with one another and where old people and young people intermingle who are not necessarily related to each other, where Mm -hmm. people who would never cross paths, even in a grocery store, because they are in different socioeconomic tiers and shop at different grocery stores or have people shop for them, right? Mm -hmm. It's a place where everybody meets. And I also think, you know, I see a million think pieces about this all the time, but people are really, really lonely right now. And and I do think people have always been terribly lonely. I mean, we wouldn't have such beautiful poetry (laughs) if that wasn't the case. But (laughs) Spoken like a true four. (laughs) You know. (laughs) An Enneagram reference. Oh, my God. As I'm drinking out of my Shakespeare mug. Thank you. Uh, (laughs) But, um, you know, there's like a, a genuine like technological internet age loneliness where we're more connected and also more disconnected. Yeah. And like. The gift of the church and the internet is that you, whom I've never hugged, never mm-hmm. shared in the Eucharist with, are one of mm-hmm. my dearest friends, whom mm-hmm. I am connected to through the Eucharist, which is like gorgeous. But also, like, mm-hmm. if people are genuine, like, like, not if, I know people are lonely and they're seeking friendship and they're seeking friendship and community that will show up for them even when they're not at their best. Mm-hmm. And that is the whole point of church. And church is community. So of course it has challenges because every single person there matters. And that's difficult because sometimes we have conflicting needs, but I really believe in the community. And so to sort of round this out, I have a lighthearted metaphor. Should I end with this lighthearted metaphor, Laura? Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. I love it. Okay. I actually have two lighthearted metaphors. I've been waiting the whole time to try and find, because I thought about this after we moved on from the Bible. So I don't (laughs) Okay. I saw this meme recently. And the meme said, (laughs) in a hundred years or more, people are going to think that a booty call 
and a butt dial are the same thing. <laughs> yes, I saw this meme. It's so epic. <laughs> and that is why context and historical interpretation context language study literary analysis we are we are reading booty calls into paul's butt dial and that just isn't right people (laughs) no that is that is perfect i yes this is why yes of course like you know this is the whole biblical inerrancy thing i'm like yeah i don't think the bible has errors in it but like i do think it's full of people and people are sinful like i just it's such an odd dichotomy i think to say absolutely up. and it just puts god in a smaller box to yep. say god is contained within scripture no god is not and actually scripture tells us god is not contained within scripture god is god scripture right. is the love letter between god and god's people as unfolding over thousands of years with redactions and changes and edits and and internal contradictions. And that's part of what makes it beautiful because it's a love story mm-hmm. between many people and one faithful God. So my lighthearted metaphor for evangelism, because someone asked a question of us, which is how do I be an evangelical or evangelize and not be a jerk? Amazing question. Brilliant question. And here I'm going to leave y'all with this. I think being a good evangelist is like loving good tacos. So mm. I live in Austin, Texas. There are always hot new restaurants opening up left, right, and center. And before I had a baby, I used to love to go to all of them. And now I have like five that have playgrounds that we frequent. And periodically I get to go <laughs> to ones that don't have playgrounds on a random date night. Um, and I love to go. And even though like a taco, right, is like a, an ancient, beautiful, life-changing meal, not unlike the Eucharist. <laughs> it is essentially a tortilla, either flour or corn, and stuff in it, right? Like it's not revolutionary. And yet every time I go to a new taco place that is revolutionary, I'm like, oh, my life has fundamentally changed. I have yet encountered mm-hmm. a new taco. Mm-hmm. I now need to tell everyone in my life who also loves tacos, who also loves Tex-Mex, who's, who is flying in from Pittsburgh to visit me in Austin, Texas. <laughs> I got to show you the like five different kinds of tacos that are my top five favorite. But Laura, when you do fly to Austin, Texas from Pittsburgh, and we get to partake in communion together in person, not just in the communion of saints. It would be pretty insensitive of me if I took you to a place that didn't have vegetarian options, right? Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. you are a vegetarian. Mm-hmm. And so when I think about evangelism, I think about the way that I naturally, and I think all of us naturally, invite people to like things we like and that give yeah. us joy. Right? So you don't have to love the Barbie movie to be my friend. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but if you are my friend we're, and you ask me, like, what you know, what's the best movie you've seen this year? I'll tell you about the Barbie movie because it was, it's my favorite movie that I've seen this year. Right. And, um, in much the same way that also, if I am trying to be, if I'm inviting people into a life changing encounter, I'm going to be mindful of their dietary needs, AKA their religious disposition. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. So what do you make of that, Laura? I want mushrooms in my tacos. I'm not going for beef. I think that's spot on. There's nuance to it in consideration to it. And we have that, you know, we, we apply that to our concept of, of evangelical today. And it's such a big topic. I think part of our challenge to keep this conversation concise is it is such a big 
force in there's the cultural side and then there's also kind of our, our biblical side. But I hope that for people who have listened, they have resonated or learned something new from this conversation today, because I think evangelical Christianity will touch so many of our episodes. I mean, we named two that are coming up, our episode on hell, our episode on Eucharist. I know we're going to be talking about evangelical Christianity in those episodes. And so it's it's important, I think, for us to name to define what it is, and then also to explain what it is to us in our lives. And like, what a great question, how to be an evangelical without being a jerk. Because I think even <laughs> the most progressive Christians, like we can sometimes feel apologetic and embarrassed. And like, that's actually mm-hmm. an experience I had a lot growing up was like, mm-hmm. I'm a Christian, but I'm not like that. Cause I grew up in a household where I wouldn't say they were queer celebratory. My parents, I would say so now, but they were very queer tolerant. Mm-hmm. Like we had, and and even more so, like they cherished gay people in our lives, right? So Mm -hmm. I just, I think sometimes we need permission to be like, yeah, this matters to me and this is life-giving to me. And no, it's not necessarily the big bad lie that you've been sold. Yeah, absolutely. And as you said in the Bible episode, Laura, like, I'm paraphrasing and sort of reinterpreting, but like, be aware of the storytellers in our world. And Mm -hmm. you and I, I think, one of the deepest evangelical things we're trying to do is to say, folks who are telling you a story that women don't get to be in leadership, that queer people aren't loved, they they don't get to tell the story of God Mm -hmm. as we know God. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think we'll come back to this conversation a lot, but I appreciate the opportunity to share a little bit about it and have this conversation today. Yeah. Thanks for sticking with us. Thank you all for listening. We, We are just so tickled by your support, your feedback, your love. Thank you all. It means so much. And if you like this episode, if you like the episodes you've heard, please share them with a friend, with an enemy, with whoever will listen. We <laughs> we'll take it. And we also You're have such an evangelical <laughs> Of course, of course. Uh, We also have a Patreon. We have an Instagram, a Facebook page. Anyway, you can find us in all those places and support us in many different ways. And and we truly appreciate all of it. Thanks, y'all. Laura, the Lord be with you. And also with you. (laughs) 